Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. If you've enjoyed any or all of the more than 125 interviews in this podcast series, will you help spread the word about this rich and meaningful listening experience? Think of it as another helping hand of AA that we can offer alcoholics everywhere. On today's podcast, I'm pleased to welcome Felice W., whose journey in AA has inspired other alcoholic women to try our way of life. Growing up as an adopted child whose older brothers made good at home and at school with seemingly little effort, Felice struggled and was drawn to errant behavior and alcohol use by age 14, shortly after her parents divorced. The family escalation of dysfunction that followed launched Felice into an adolescence in which alcohol and later drugs became her main coping tools. She continued to use until she finally got sober in AA at age 26. Her classic what-it-was-like story was fraught with increasingly dire consequences until she finally hit bottom deep enough to convince her to join AA. Though she stayed sober in the ensuing years, Felice still experienced two divorces as well as other major challenges to her sobriety. But she stayed involved in the program, and AA's core constituents pulled her through each time. As the years passed and the gifts of the program continued to materialize, Felice found new meaning and purpose in her life, including her current marriage to a man whose long-term and rock-solid involvement in Alcoholics Anonymous continues to enrich both of their lives. Felice's story conveys a strong message of hope for anyone seeking long-term sobriety, whether they're struggling with life's challenges or currently basking in the sunlight of the Spirit. Her upbeat enthusiasm and unabashed confidence in her own program adds a good deal of power to Felice's message. It certainly touched me, and I believe it will touch you, too. So please, sit back and enjoy the next hour and five minutes of AA Recovery Interviews with my friend and AA sister, Felice W. My name is Felice, and I am an alcoholic. Hi, Felice. Hi. Thank you so much for joining me today on the AA Recovery Interviews podcast. I'm really thrilled to have you here. I am meeting you for the first time that I feel like I've known you for years vicariously through your lovely husband. And I've sat in many meetings with him when he has described uh, a really beautiful relationship. And it's good to see AA working in his life by virtue of having you in his life. It works in our lives. That's what's so beautiful about having a married couple in recovery is Sharing the language and the principles of this program has really enhanced our marriage. Now, you've been sober how many years? 31. 31, and your sobriety date is? November 5th, 1991. So the thing I was wondering about when you said that about both being in the program, being able to talk a similar language, what is that like for you? And what was it like when you first got married to somebody in the program? Well, when I got sober... I was 26 years old, and I actually, my first marriage was to someone in the program as well. I met Pat a long time ago. I got sober in Houston, just like Pat did. And I met him then and then ran into him again years and years later after I'd been sober some time. Mm -hmm. I think because both of us had been living and practicing the program for so many years at that point, Mm -hmm. The thing that is the same for both of us is that when we came into AA, both of us fell in love with the program, and that has never changed. And so even with many years of sobriety, I still go to, you know, usually four meetings a week. I still see my sponsor once a week, and I still sponsor women. So Pat shares that same situation. Mm -hmm. And consequently, our home has become a place for people to get together in recovery. And so I think because of that, because our life centers around recovery, not always together, but lots of times together, we just, we share the joy of not only being able to use the principles in our own marriage, but also to watch all these other people getting Mm -hmm. sober, staying sober, and using it in their lives. So it's just a very, Mm -hmm. very, uh, we're very centered around sobriety. I see. The couples that you hang out with, are most of them couples in the program? 
Yes, they are. What's that mix look like? You know, it's interesting because I know that's not the same for everyone, but for whatever reason, Pat and I um, have really gravitated Mm -hmm. in Austin where we live to um, hanging out with friends in the program. Our group is so special. Mm -hmm. Every Friday night, we get together before the Friday night meeting and have dinner. And there's probably 20 of us every time that sit around a couple of tables in a restaurant for fellowship. And then when Pat and I uh, make plans to go out on weekends, we, we typically choose to invite other couples in the program Not always where both of them are in recovery, but at least one and get to know them better outside of the program as well. Mm -hmm. And consequently, we just have a very large circle of friends and they are tied to recovery. And that's not to say that, you know, we don't each have other hobbies that we do that are not. You know, I'm a huge pickleball player, so I have a host of friends that I see and play pickleball with, but they are not the same friends that I do weekend events and going out and experiencing my entertainment. What's it like to be so enthusiastic about a sport that's called pickleball after being in the program for so many years? I know, right? (laughs) Exactly. And I feel a little pickled by it too, but in a different way, because pickleball players will tell you, I mean, it does not come with aches and pains, but the addict in me cannot get enough of it. (laughs) Yeah. But you don't have to be pickled to play pickleball, which is a good thing. Being 100% sober is probably a big help. Yeah, I get that. So what was going on in your life almost 32 years ago that turned your direction towards AA? Let's see. I grew up in a home with three older brothers. Um, My parents stayed married until the last one of those three brothers went off to college. Uh Five years before they went, my brothers were all in high school. They were all smoking a lot of pot, doing a lot of drinking, partying. I mean, it was the late 70s, early 80s. And I started to do the same thing with very different results. I was adopted and my three brothers were biological to my parents. Hmm. And I could never figure out how all three of them were so successful in school, went off to go to college went off to go to business school, get their master's, become lawyers. I mean, it was mind-boggling to me because I couldn't even get through school. I mean, I just started having problems right away. How old were you when you were adopted? I was eight months old when I was adopted. Okay, so you didn't know anything but those parents and those brothers. And if there had been some kind of predilection towards... Uh, being good scholastically or in any other way, it it might not have applied to you simply because you weren't part of the gene pool. That's right. That's right. Hmm. But what I couldn't understand is how were they drinking and having so much success, smoking pot daily and having so much success. When I started Hmm. drinking and drugging, I was 14 years old and Mm -hmm. I you know, first got it out of my father's closet. He left my mom and married a much younger woman. Mm. And she was someone who used a lot of alcohol and drugs. And so my dad started to. And of Mm. course, as soon as I started to get in trouble at home, I wanted to go live with my dad because that looked like a lot of fun. So at 15, I went to move in with him and just basically found my way into their closet and found you know, alcohol, cocaine, started stealing their liquor from the liquor cabinet and was off to the races. Yeah, that sounds like a a really tough thing to a child of a divorce and having to choose and choosing the more party-oriented parent. How old were you when they were divorced? I was 12 when they divorced. Okay, so how did you deal with the two years between 12 and 14 when you started drinking for effect? You know, my mom was pretty devastated when my dad left and... For whatever reason, as a kid, I looked at her and blamed her. Mm. And I saw in my mind at the time, this young, beautiful, outgoing party lady. And I looked at my mom and I made a conscious decision that I was not going to be like my mom, that I wanted to be like this other woman. 
And so I started to fight with my mom. I started to sneak out of the house, take the car in the middle of the night. Mm -hmm. So the behavior started before the alcohol and drugs. And I just started to, you know, argue with her daily. I was very disrespectful. And I gave her a really hard time, which is very sad to me now because she was doing the very best she could. But she was very depressed from the whole situation yeah and i didn't make it any easier on her hmm. mm -hmm. so when you went to live with your father was she essentially alone at that point or your brother's still there no they were all gone so i left hmm. and my mom was alone i lived there for a year i ended up going to four different high schools one of the themes in my life was you know i would cause a lot of wreckage I would have friends that would not be my friends by the end of the year because I was too much. Hmm. And I would ask to go live either with my mom or my dad. One year I asked to go to boarding school. I went off to boarding school in New Hampshire. And then my senior year I came home and it got so bad that at the end of the year I hadn't done a project that I needed to graduate. Mm -hmm. And the teacher said, if you don't turn this in, you know, you're not going to graduate with the rest of your class. You know, it's so hard for me to even think that this was who I was at the <laughs> time, but I just stood up and said, fuck you, lady. <laughs> and I turned around and walked out and I quit high school. And I moved in with a boyfriend and his mom, and he had graduated the year before. My dad came to the house and begged me, begged me to come back and go to school and finish and I just said, no way, I'm not doing it. So I ended up getting a GED. So that was just, you know, there was just a lot of wreckage all through high school. Every year culminated in, you know, some kind of like, really just a lot of shame about my own behavior and not being able to go back the next year and face all of the people that sort of watched me unravel. Was that behavior all fueled by the drinking and were you doing drugs as well? I was. I was doing a lot of drugs. I I always say, thank God no one ever offered me heroin or crack because I would have done it. Yeah. That was the type of using I did. I just, I thought of myself as this little party girl. And so wherever the party was, whatever was happening, if someone offered me something, I'd be sure I'll try it, you know, and I put myself in a lot of dangerous situations. Hmm. When you were facing all this wreckage going on, did you connect the wreckage to the drinking or was there a separation in your mind? I don't think I did at that point. It wasn't until after I got my GED and I was living with this boyfriend. I followed him into beauty school. I'm a beauty school dropout. So he was going to be a hairdresser. I followed him there. And then he ended up, while we were together, cheating on me. And my reaction to that was, I'm going to take a bunch of pills. You know, it was very dramatic. What I did was I took a bunch of pills, and then I called him to let him know I had done it. And thank God I did. And then he called a neighbor who, you know, had a key to my mom's house, came in, got me, put me in a car, and took me to the hospital, and I had my stomach pumped. And so that was my first time to really understand that I was very sick and I was seeing a therapist, and the therapist said, I think we should send you to treatment. And I didn't even know what that was. I didn't know what AA was. I didn't know anything at that point. So by that point, you took all those pills, supposed to be intended as murder by codependency. Uh, right. <laughs> so exactly. so I'll, I'll, I'll hurt you by really hurting me. Was that the thinking at that time? That was it. Thank you. That's such a great way to describe it. I don't think I thought past that. I really didn't. I think I put myself in a lot of danger and had I have not connected to him or I don't know what would have happened, but you're right. That's all I could think about was I'm going to make you sorry. Yes. Yes. Inter it's interesting. That's classic. Yeah. Classic. Classic, classic codependence too. Yeah. Uh, you know, let me, let me drink the poison so you will die. Yeah. And, uh, We've heard that over the years, I'm sure, a lot. Wow, that sounds really unfortunate. So you were 17, 18 years old when all this was going on? I was 18 years old, and I was almost 19. Mm. And I went to the treatment center in Houston, and um, they got me in. 
I was 18, about to turn 19, and they had two different areas. They had one for 18 and under, Mm -hmm. and then there was 19 and up was the adults. And so I was put with the adults. Mm -hmm. You know, I had no idea what I was doing. I I often think that I would have done better had Mm -hmm. I have been in the younger because there were mostly older people on that unit and Mm -hmm. we were taken to the meetings and that was all older people. And even though when I was in treatment, because I was the type of person since the day I started, I was a daily pot smoker. I was Mm -hmm. a daily drinker. Uh, I, I was just listening to Miles' time with you when he said, it wasn't like I could be sober for a few days and get something done and then party. That was not me. I woke up, I smoked pot before I put my feet on the floor. I had a little bong right next to my bed. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that was how I lived my life. So once I was in treatment and I was even a few days sober, I remember feeling so elated. And then we started to learn about the disease of alcoholism. Uh And I started to have this epiphany that maybe since I was adopted, that my family were genetically different and I may have been predisposed. And so I started to think, you know, maybe I am bodily different. Mm -hmm. And I really bought into the idea that there's this mental obsession, the physical craving, there's no stopping it. And I just remember being in treatment and thinking, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm ready to be sober. And then two days out of treatment, I was smoking pot again. And I was thinking, how weird is that to just completely change your mind after I had been so gung-ho? And now I know that that's the disease of alcoholism. That's what we do. Yeah, as alcoholics and as addicts, that's what we do. I was very much the same way. I I can't remember a day that I wasn't high. And I used to have the bong next to the bed, kind of like you did. How how long did you spend in treatment? 30 days. Okay, so 30 Mm -hmm. days. So... You're hearing all this stuff. You're going in. What was your expectation when you went in? What did what did you want to accomplish by going into that treatment center? You know, really what I thought going in is I just need a break. Mm. And I didn't even know what that meant. I just need a break. I need a break from reality. I need to be taken care of. I need to be able to not have to face anything on the outside. I didn't know what it meant. So you were essentially handing yourself over to a facility and tell, and asking them, fix me, take care of me. Mm-hmm. Yes. Whatever is going on in my life, I want you to make it better. And if all I have to do is not drink and use drugs for 30 days, then that's great. And then you get out and two days later, you're smoking pot again. Mm-hmm. What was there mm-hmm. in what they were telling you that you felt like when you heard it wasn't true about drinking? And it, I mean, if you went back to it, Something about it didn't ring true, what they were telling you about drugs and alcohol. What what do you think some of those things were? Well, I think, I'm sure I thought I'm not powerless. Huh. Yeah, I I think that I must have come out and thought, okay, yeah, it got real bad, but I think I can do it this time, and I won't won't be like that. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I know a number of alumni from that uh, facility who are still sober today uh, that faced the very same thing you did. They, they went through the program, they got sober, they got dry, they stopped using drugs. And then something about, they didn't get, the connection with AA must not have been well enough established that, they, that a number of them went out and did just what you did. They didn't go to AA yeah. immediately. They went mm-hmm. to go smoke dope or drink again. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What did you learn about AA when you were there that made you either want to or not want to go to meetings? What I learned about AA was that it was something that I was going to have to commit to Mm -hmm. um, doing on a regular basis, meaning in the beginning, they wanted me to do 90 and 90. Mm Mm-hmm what it felt like was it was going to require way too much energy and also the meetings that they took us to in the van, everybody was quite a bit older and I just didn't feel like I was seeing 
other young women my age or young men my age in the rooms. And I felt very afraid because I was so tied in with my party crowd. And that was my life. I mean, every night we were out and about and I just, I could not fathom not having like a fellowship of people. Little did I know that, you know, it was going to far surpass what I ever had. But at the time, it just felt like, I don't see how I fit here. Hmm. And that's a real problem people have when they start to think about going into AA. What am I going to do with all my friends? What's going to happen with Mm -hmm. all my friends? I found Mm -hmm. that all my friends just kind of naturally went away because I became so boring, not wanting to drink or use drugs. What what was your experience? Did you try to still hang out with those folks? Well, yes. I mean, I went to another treatment center after that, a couple of years later, and the mm-hmm. same thing happened. I wanted to stay sober while I was there. And then as soon as I got out, I started to use again. Over the next six years, because I got sober at 26, so from 20 to 26, mm-hmm. I would come into AA sometimes and because it would get so bad. And then I would think, okay, I'm just going to keep my old friends and every single time I did that, every time I tried to go out with my friends and be sober, I would be back using. Hmm. So that never worked for me. When I finally got sober at 26, uh, one of my very best friends at the time who I partied with was getting mm-hmm. married and she was having a um, bachelorette party in Houston. And I had almost 90 days of sobriety. And so I knew, I knew if I went that I could not stay sober. So Mm. I said a prayer about it. And then I had this idea, I'm going to go stay in Austin with my brother and I'll go to meetings there. And I'm just not even going to be in Houston over the weekend. Mm. So I made my way to Austin and I went to a meeting and it was in this very big room there. Um, in the beginning, I introduced myself as visiting and that I had under 90 days. And then at the end of the meeting, we're all holding hands and we're through with the prayer. And I see the guy that had led the meeting and I can see he's beelining over to me. And I'm like wanting to disappear Mm because I don't feel like talking, but he comes up to me and he says, uh, are you new? And I start telling my story. Have you been through the steps? And I said, well, I'm actually going to be working on my fourth step while I'm here. And he goes, what are you doing tomorrow? And I said, I don't know. And he goes, well, meet me at Western Trails at 10 o'clock and don't be late. And I'm going to show you some things about the program. And I went and I met him the next morning, which I couldn't believe it. Mm-hmm. And he pulled the uh, posters down with 12 steps, 12 traditions, sat me down at a table, threw a spiral notebook down, gave me a pen and he walked me through all 12 steps Wow! with such, such exuberance and excitement. And when he was finished, he said, now I want you to keep doing this same thing for other people. It was just a crazy experience. And it was, I mean, so genuinely given. Of course, I get home and, you know, the whole bachelorette party was apparently very crazy and a couple of fights, people getting sick, you know, this group separating. <laughs> it was just, uh-huh. and I just knew that God's grace had touched me and I felt so grateful that I didn't make it. And, you know, that's always for an alcoholic. Like, what am I missing? What if I missed the party? What if I, you know, and I actually missed it and felt grateful for the first time. And it was like a reality check. You know, I'm thinking that it's this great, wonderful party, but it never is. No, no, of course not. It's always a mess. And God, it sounds like, put somebody in your life at that meeting who was very important in your early sobriety. Did you drink after that? I did not. I stayed sober after that. And then, you know, when I moved to Austin, when I was six years sober, I went to that meeting thinking, I want to go say hello. And I walked in and he was not only chairing, but he was celebrating his 26th year in sobriety. So after the meeting, I run up to him and I'm like, hi, do you remember me? And he goes, no. And I said, oh, and I shared my, you know, you help me, blah, blah, blah. And he goes, what are you doing Sunday? (laughs) And he wanted me to go share uh, at the Women's Treatment Center here in Austin, which I did. And I had never done before. But yeah, it was really, yeah, it was funny. Is he still around? He's not. He passed away. That's a rare breed of people that 
do that kind of thing that will actually extend themselves to a newcomer or somebody just coming back to just say, meet me here, meet me there, come with me right now. Oh, yeah. It is. That's like old time AA. So you uh, you were sober outside of Austin for how long? Um, so I was I got sober in Houston. I in ninety one, and then in ninety three I got married, and I uh, was going to design school, and I was finishing up, and I needed an in- internship. Mm-hmm. And my fiance at the time, who was in the program, um, knew Pat C from the men's meeting that you guys all went to. And Pat was a home builder at the time, and his designer on staff was having a baby, and he needed someone to step in. Mm -hmm. So my ex-husband put us together, and I went and did my internship for him. So I met him, and I met his first wife, and we went to meetings together. They came to our wedding, and then when we were married... My husband got transferred to Boston, Massachusetts. So we moved when I had two years of sobriety. And I never saw Pat again. I see. Um, for like 20-something years. But anyways, so we lived in Boston, Massachusetts. And I did two years of recovery there. And I'll tell you, when I first moved there, I had that moment where I said, nobody knows me here. Maybe I would have outgrown <laughs> it if I just gave it a little more time. And Boston is so is such a different type of AA. My my younger son and his wife uh, live up in Boston, and I've I have a like a little home group I go to when I go up there, and it's a much different feel to it. But I still consider them my home group when I'm in Boston. But you know, a lot a lot of people leave Houston to go elsewhere and say there are no meetings anywhere that are like yes. Houston's meetings. How did you feel about it at that time? It was very different in the beginning. And I I think that was part of the reason I felt super lonely. But they had this thing called AWOL and it was a flyer in an AA meeting, and that stands for AA Way of Life. And what it is is you go with a group, you sign up, all female, all male. And you do the 12 steps in 16 weeks as a group. And that saved my butt because I just made these friends. Then they were the friends that I hung out with while I was sober in Boston. And we got to know each other on a very intimate level. And you know how it is. I mean, uh, two people in recovery have just this like instant benefit where we can become very close, very fast with this shared experience. And so I was very blessed. Yes. That's important uh, to have those kind of shared experiences along the way. So we blasted through a big chunk of your life here when we're talking about from when you first started drinking until you got sober. In and amongst those years, what would you say were the most difficult years for you? And how did alcohol and drugs play a part? You know, it was just very um, dark. Once I had gotten out of that first treatment center, I tried to do all sorts of things. Um, Once I had been sober at all in a treatment center, I knew, I knew in my gut that if I was going to have any success in life, I was going to have to be sober. But I was fighting it. You know, it's anything but AA. Please, I just anything but being sober all the time. And so I tried to manage it. And I tried to do what I was raised to, you know, the value system was, was to go to school. So I went to three different colleges. I would, I was always withdrawing from classes. I was always wrecking cars, making messes, changing schools, trying to get more money from my parents to continue the lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, and burning a lot of bridges with friends over and over and over again. Really, when I finally decided to get sober this last time, I got sober at 25. I stayed sober for 90 day, or 89 days. And then I went out for three months and came back at 26. But what happened was I had gone to mm-hmm. uh, my mom and said, I want to go to treatment. And I was upstairs when my dad came over to talk to her. And I heard my dad say, I'm done. I'm not doing this again. It doesn't matter how much money we throw at this. Hmm. She's never going to change. And my mom was pleading with him and it really hit me. But my mom tried to make it work through insurance and the insurance 
companies were cracking down then and I had already been twice and they weren't going to pay for the whole thing. And I don't think my mom could do it. And I just went to a meeting. I had a neighbor that was um, living next door. She was so friendly. I just was so attracted to her energy. And we even had lunch one time. And then one day I had a bunch of friends over the house and we were all smoking pot. And I saw her walking by and I invited her in. And she said, no, no, thanks, I can't. And I just had this thought, I wonder if she's sober. Hmm. And so I went over to visit her shortly after that when I was about to go to a meeting. And she invited me in. And sure enough, there was a big book laying on her table. And I said, oh, my gosh, are you sober? And she said, yes. And I said, I really need to get back to meetings. And she goes, let's go tonight. That's how I got into a meeting again. (laughs) Like I said, I stayed sober for 89 days, and then I wanted to go out with some friends. I was still trying that number, and I met a guy that night, and the rest was history. Uh And then those 90 days, because a big part of my story is just like when I get really drunk and drug too much, I became very promiscuous. And so there was just a mm, very bad, ugly, dark 90 days. And then I just woke up and said, Mm -hmm. I'm done, and I really felt it. And I went to meeting after meeting, got a sponsor, and I've stayed sober ever since. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, I invite you to check out my latest audiobook, Alcoholics Anonymous, the story of how more than 100 men have recovered from alcoholism. This is the word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of the first edition of the big book, published in 1939. It's a relaxing yet meaningful and engaging way to listen to the big book anytime, anyplace. Have a free listen at Audible, iTunes, or Amazon. While you're there, search for my other audiobook, Lost Stories of the Big Book, 30 original stories missing from the third and fourth editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's also available from Amazon as a Kindle book or in paperback if you'd like to read along. You're going to love it. And we're back sounds like your path to AA is not dissimilar to a lot of other people. 14 seems to be the age at which most people start using and drinking. That was that way for me. Getting to AA and wanting to keep old friends, that sounds very familiar as well. But once we're here, the question is, so why did we stay? To me, the biggest question that you face when you come in and you get sober in AA is now what? Now what? I'm sober. Isn't that enough? When when you first came into the program, what were the what was the first let's say three six nine months like and and take us through a few years to, we can get a feeling for how you took to AA. Um. So gosh, let's see. When I first came into AA, um, I know you know Bob B. Yeah, I do. I miss him. He was great. Well, Lynn was my sponsor. I went a while without having a sponsor. I would say probably the first 60 days, even though I knew I needed a sponsor, I was really afraid to ask someone. And Bob um, was such a love back then. And he just sort of could see that I (laughs) was not all in. And You know, he said something in a meeting, and I mean, now we've heard this many times in many ways, but when he said it, it really hit me, and he said, I was never afraid of dying, I was afraid of living like that the rest of my life. And when I heard him say that, I walked up to him and I said, I need a sponsor, do you have any suggestions? And he mentioned Lynn. And so I asked Lynn to be my sponsor, And she was just a great sponsor. Um, You know, she gave me the work to do, um, but I was not a great student. So I kind of did it when I wanted to, and I took a long time to do it. It was not very good work. Maybe it was the best work I could do at that time. Mm -hmm. Um, I was much more uh, interested in the social part of AA, which I did enjoy I had met my um, first husband in the program, and I also met a young woman in the program. We started running together, and she started 
introduced me to all of her friends that were younger in the program. I'm very fortunate that I was able to stay sober because I don't think I did the work like I asked the people that I sponsor to do the work in the beginning. And consequently, I often say I feel like I had one foot in and one foot out because I did a lot of self-pity um, for having to be sober, to not be able to drink like everybody else. And this is how far into sobriety? The first couple of years. I would say when I moved to Boston and did that AWOL where we went through the steps in 16 weeks is where I had a psychic change. The first two years... I stayed sober because I was in a sober relationship and I didn't mind being in AA, but there was still that part of me that wished I could drink uh-huh. and somehow I made it through. And I would say to my first husband all the time, I'd be like, you know, I think I might not be an alcoholic. I always said, I think I was just so young and I might've grown out of it. And he had the best response And that was, well, then you may need to go and try drinking again. And he gave me permission. I think about that and I, and I would just be scared. Like I didn't want it all on me, you know? So I'd say, okay, well maybe not today. So you didn't come real close to drinking when he gave you permission to drink then, huh? No, no. It almost was like, okay, I've changed my mind. (laughs) That's great. I'm wondering about Lynn, whether she put any pressure on you or whether she was easygoing with uh, the sponsorship. If you want to do it, fine. If you don't, that's okay too. I've known people who years later will blame that sponsor for not being harder on them, especially if they went out and drank after being sponsored for a time. What was your relationship like with Lynn and how did she sponsor you? Uh, you know, I think it was very distant. I And that was because of me. I didn't want anyone real close. I still had that rebel in me. I didn't like being told what to do. Uh-huh. She sort of had this thing like, I'm here if you want me, but you've got to reach out and you've got to make it happen. And she did not pester me like, why haven't you called? Why haven't you checked in? Why haven't you done this work? She just kind of allowed me to um, decide how much I wanted. You know, now looking back, I've had two very long-term sponsors in AA. Mm -hmm. I'm on my third long-term. My second one, who I had for 15 years, she passed away of lung cancer a couple of years ago. I'm sorry. Yeah, it was really difficult. But what I would say about my long-term sponsors is I had had the psychic change at that time, and I wanted the program. Mm -hmm. And I... my. Uh, second sponsor after Lynn, I didn't get until I was 10 years sober. I kind of worked without a sponsor for a very long time as well. I don't think I had, I had one in Boston. And when I came back, I didn't really get one until I moved to Austin. And with 10 years sober was just anxious, depressed, unhappy. But I was going to those meetings there and there was this woman there and she had people buzzing around her all the time. She was so uplifting when she talked. The meeting was over. All these girls would clamor around her. They would be laughing. And I was in such a bad place that I was, you know, like, all she does is AA. She has no life. You know, I'm thinking all these terrible things because that's where I was. This is 10 years into sobriety we're talking about here? 10 years into sobriety, yes. When did you start feeling that way? I know you mentioned a couple years in Boston, but... Yeah, I would say, you know, I started having kids. I had three kids. I wasn't getting to enough meetings. I kind of moved away from AA between five and 10 years of sobriety until it got painful enough to where I started going to meetings. Then I started to see this woman and um, I finally decided she has something that I don't. Mm. So I'm going to ask her to be my sponsor. And I did. And she looked at me and she said, I'm happy to sponsor you, but I will tell you if I sponsor you, what I expect is once we've been through the steps that you start taking others through the step. Like that is what I'm going to ask of you. Are you committed to doing that? Mm -hmm. And you know, I had had people ask me a couple of times here and there to be a sponsor. None of them had stayed sober. And I took that very hard. Like I was doing something wrong. 
So I really didn't put myself out there, mm-hmm. but you know, I, I told her, yes, yes, I'll do it. And you know, I worked the steps with her. We read the big book together. We just did a whole different process because I was willing, because I was calling her and saying, when can we get together again? I've done my work. Let's do what's next. When I finished working the steps with her, you know, I started to have some problems in my marriage. And so we, we ended up staying married. I I got divorced from my first husband when I was 17 years sober. And in that time I had been working with Luann, my sponsor then, and I had started to pick up some sponsees. And I really think that's what got me through that whole time. My life kind of looked a little bit messy, but spiritually I felt very, very strong. And while I was going through some really hard stuff, I was sharing openly and honestly about it. And the exact opposite happened. I thought because my life was so messy that people would not want me to sponsor them. Mm -hmm. But the opposite was true. And I ended up sharing about all of this stuff that was very difficult. And then I would talk about the principles of the program and working with others and all the things that were keeping me sane and sober Mm -hmm. throughout it. And people just started asking me to sponsor them. And I started to sponsor and it became a huge part of my life. So they start to identify with you because they see that what you are sharing with them is true, honest experience as opposed to just, you know, standing on a pedestal and telling them what to do. I get that. Absolutely. That sounds like a really, really great way to get sponsees. I'd, I'd hate to advise anybody, mess up your life a little <laughs> bit so you'd be a little bit more attractive to the potential sponsees. But it sounds to me like your your attitude towards sponsorship must have shifted during that time. It absolutely did. And, you know, my sobriety from 10 years to where I am now has been to me where the changes have happened in my life that have softened Mm -hmm. me, that have Mm -hmm. given me self-acceptance, that have helped me have a desire to be non-judgmental and more accepting of you also. Now, I'm not going to say I live in that all the time because I don't. I'm just like every other crazy alcoholic. Mm -hmm. But when I find myself kind of off the beam and in doing those, that, that kind of thinking and criticizing and the critical mind, I know what it's like to not be in that. And I know the steps to take because of all the work that I did starting at that 10 year mark. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get it. And it's important, especially when you're, you're sober that long to make sure that you're not giving off the wrong vibes to people, because it's real easy for people to look at someone with 10 years and say, well, she's got 10 years and look at how messed up she is. I don't know if I really want that. Right. So you, you were able to share that with them, but with the hope and the knowledge that AA was going to get you through it in the fellowship. And how about spiritual, spiritually at this point, what, what was your relationship with God like when you first came to AA and how did it? change over the years? You know, I was concerned about the God part of it. I was raised in a Jewish family and my religious background, if I were to explain it to you at the time was, you know, I went to Sunday school and then Mm -hmm. was confirmed and that happened until I was 12 and I hated it. I hated going I was a kid that had way too much energy, was always getting in trouble, had terrible conduct grades, and I didn't want to get up on Sunday morning and go, and I resented my parents for making me do it. And then I had three older brothers that were all bar mitzvahed, and they gave me a choice, and they said, do you want to go to Hebrew school and get bat mitzvahed? And I said, no, thank you. So I didn't. Hmm. And so the only time we went to temple was on what's called the high holidays, which was Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, and we celebrated Hanukkah. And that's all I really knew. I never knew that the purpose of having spirituality in your life, or my purpose today, is to have a connection with a higher power Mm -hmm. and to have that power greater than me, be able to achieve things that I could never do for myself, like be sober, like help other people, 
like get out of myself, become unselfish, all those things that I never could have done without this power. What you're saying about the growing up Jewish, I did as well. Mm -hmm. And I had some real issues when I came into AA with the God part of the program. I just thought, you know, I've spent my whole life with people trying to shove their beliefs down my throat and people saying, you're going to burn in hell because you don't believe what we believe, etc. Mm -hmm. And so I thought AA was just another one of those places where I was going to encounter that. I was desperate enough that I said, okay, if that's what it takes to be sober, I will. What was your, what was your feeling about seeing that when you first came in coming from a different uh, different heritage than, let's say, the majority of people in AA? You know, I was worried about it, too. I didn't know what to expect, but I will say one of the first things I heard was a God of your understanding. Um, you know, it says in our book um, that some of us bristle with antagonism, and that's how it was at first. I remember first few meetings, every once in a while, someone would call their name, their God by name, and it was not, you know, mm -hmm. the name that I had been raised with for God and it felt scary. Um, hmm. but very quickly I realized that I couldn't stay sober. That is one thing I was sure of. I like in and of myself, I am going to go back to the drink and drug. I've tried it too many times and it hasn't worked. And so Lynn did say that I did not need to know who God was. I needed to act as if I, I didn't have the belief yet and acting as if meant speaking to a higher power, okay, if I don't understand it, and saying exactly that in and of myself, I know that I will drink and drug, and if you don't step in, I don't think I can do it. Please step in. And I said that prayer many times in the beginning, and I remember kind of getting to even like six months of sobriety and going, something's working here, and that's where my faith started to build. And, you know, it's changed so much over the years, but it has only mm -hmm. grown uh, more deeply and, and feels more lovely. That meshes very nicely with my experience as well, mm -hmm. where I had to I had to just believe that they believed. And I just had to believe that I didn't necessarily have to accept it. I could mouth the word. And, and people, my, even my sponsor told me this. He says, even if you don't believe, act as if you believe. Because mm -hmm. this, you will act your way into the right way of thinking mm -hmm. instead of think your way into the right way of acting. So my spiritual understanding, my spiritual connection over the years has really changed. Much for the better, obviously, than it was when I first got here. You got married and you were married for 17 years. Mm -hmm. uh, you said 17 years into your sobriety. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. What did that particular breakup do to your program and your serenity at that time? Oh, gosh. Um, you know, if I'm honest, I it was okay for a while. And then, you know, I, I think I started to revert back to some old behavior. Hmm. The behavior for me or the belief was that I needed a man to be okay. And so I ended up finding myself another husband, a second husband. Pat is my third husband. Mm -hmm. You know, it's almost embarrassing to say, because it's like you had so much sobriety and you had like this little period of time where I can say the only thing I didn't do was drink and drug. I kind of I had three small children at home. They were reeling. Um, they were very sad about the situation mm -hmm. and I just couldn't deal. And I started to date and leave them at home, you know, with babysitters and, you know, in hindsight, I wish I would have done it very differently, but it was one of those things where I had to get very close to drinking and drugging almost before I could see the fragility of my sobriety and how it's, you know, a gift and it has to be maintained. Especially at that number of years sober. Yeah. I mean, people don't get to the point of almost drinking and drugging without going through all of the things that would normally help stand in the way, like a sponsor, like uh, meetings. What was starting to diminish on that scale to make your sobriety so fragile? Well, one of the things is I started dating this guy that I had met. And I, like I said, I was leaving my kids home with babysitters. I was going out at night, I was like living that behavior again from when I was using, but without the alcohol and drugs. And my sponsor, which was my, my long-term sponsor before the one that passed away, and I had been working with her 
oh gosh, for eight years at that point, she started to say to me, I really don't like what I'm seeing. And so of course I stopped, you know, reaching out to her. And then she asked <laughs> me to have lunch one day and she said, I don't think I can sponsor you anymore. Mm. And she said, I just, I can't watch you do this. And, you know, I think that it's going to lead to something really bad for you and for your children. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, well, thank you very much for your time. Uh, and then I kind of snapped out of that. And then, you know, I ended up dating someone that I had dated a long time ago in my, while I was using, and we got married for less than two years and it didn't work. And I had, you know, three kids. He'd never been married, never had kids. And it was just a band aid for me. And in that time, he was not sober and he did not like me going to meetings um, and sharing with other people. It just was so uncomfortable for him. So we ended up getting a divorce. So you were sober, what, about 20 years by this point? Yes, 20 years by that point. I I mean, it just was like one of those things where, again, it was like, I, I've got to do this like my life depends on it. And I started to do that. And that shortly after that, I ran into Pat in Austin. So you got reengaged with the program after the trauma of having to go through a second divorce, having to go through a relationship that wasn't supportive of your staying sober, in fact, may have gotten in the way of you, your desire to stay sober. What did you learn from those first two marriages about, uh, about marriage in sobriety and, and how to approach it? I think with my first marriage, it was a good marriage for a very long time. And, you know, mm-hmm. we, we met when I was three months sober. So, um, and you know, four months later we were engaged. So, and you hear a lot about don't get involved in your first year of sobriety. Oh yeah. And interestingly enough, I honestly think I stayed sober the first two years because I was with this man who was sober. Um, Mm -hmm. and that was to do with my codependence because I really felt safe with a man. I really felt like he was my higher power. That was the problem with it. He was my higher power in the beginning. And so we stayed sober together for many years. We had a lot of fun. And then, you know, it blew up for reasons that I won't go into. I still am grateful for the experience that I was able to stay sober. Now, I do not recommend getting into a relationship when you're newly sober because what I realized (laughs) is I never worked the program like I should have because I relied on him to be sober. So I never felt that urge, that pull to go do the work and, and make those that have that psychic change that could help me stay sober. I just kind of went along with him. Well, and the thing is, you'd be believed now because you had the experience of actually going through it. A lot of times you're in an AA meeting and you hear people talking and they say, don't get in a relationship for the first you know, year and don't do this and don't do that. And unless they have the personal experience to back up what they're saying, a lot of people say, well, that that's a cute saying. And they get involved. Yeah. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. And when it doesn't, it confirms the fact that you shouldn't do it. Well, I mean, you're absolutely right. And looking back now, I can see how it hindered my program and the growth in the program that I could yeah. have had. So I don't recommend it. And one thing I will say is, I, you know, the first husband was an alcoholic in recovery. The second husband was not. And Pat is in recovery. And I like having someone in recovery. I'm not saying it's for everybody. Some people don't even want it. Right. But for me, it's been a beautiful thing. And, you know, just our ability to make amends and clean stuff up as we go um, Mm -hmm. is, you know, it's something that happens. It's a gift from the program. Yeah, those are very practical things to live by, too, mm-hmm. when both parties acknowledge the importance of the 10th oh, step yes. or acknowledge the importance of the spirituality that's cooked into the program here in a few minutes. But what I wanted to ask you about was your kids. I know they're all close in age. What did your sobriety over the years and the difficulties that you had along the way, how did that affect them? You know, they've only known me sober, and I'm so happy about that. Oh, my goodness. 
you know, we did walk through a lot of beautiful times. It was really wonderful when they were really little. Mm -hmm. And we've gotten through the divorce. Right after that, I do have two kids that um, started to drink and drug. Mm -hmm. And it was difficult for me and my ex-husband to see. I think both of us, and th this is something that I, I feel strongly about my experience in, what I can look back and see today is that it scared me. And I thought that I knew exactly where it was headed. I just assumed that they were going to be exactly like me. And so when my middle son started to have problems, um, we sent him off to wilderness. And then he came back and we put him in private school. And then we sent him back to wilderness. And then he went to therapeutic boarding school. Uh, he has, he's not sober now and he's 25 years old. He ended up, he's graduated from college. He has a great job. He lives in San Diego. Um, my youngest daughter, we also put in treatment when she was a junior in high school and she really, um, turned it around after that. And, you know, she is not sober, but she is, uh, was able to have a lot of success. And so was my son. In, on his own path. He still is drinking, but it really hurt our relationship. And mm -hmm. my son is still very hurt that he had to spend so much time away from us. And, you know, at the time I just wanted to keep him safe and I was trying to do the best I could. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's very easy for those of us who are sober that had out of control teenage experiences to see our kids partake and maybe be too extreme. And, and, and I'm, I waffle on this, you know. Well, it gives them a chance to engage in the same behavior with the idea of proving you wrong. Yes. You know, you may have, you may have drank and used drugs and not been able to handle it, but I can. I mean, I face that with my own three kids. Oh, yeah. My daughter doesn't drink, has never drank. My older son... I, there was a time at which, and he's 34 years old now, but there was a time at which I was putting all of my own fears about him becoming something that he had not yet become to the extent that I was being, you know, kind of heavy. And after a while, he just said, look, you know, uh, that was you. That's your experience. That's not going to be my experience. And that was a wake up call. Mm hmm. But I think it's natural for us, especially those of us who went through some really tough, tough years drunk and, and uh, addled with drug abuse, I don't think it's that rare for us to come down heavy on them. Mm -hmm. we're, we're putting our own fears mm -hmm. on them. And uh, I don't want you to turn out like I did. So they turn out like we did. I mean, the... <laughs> <laughs> exactly. so when did that kind of turn around for you? When did your thinking on that turn around? So when my daughter got home from treatment, she kind of lived by the letter. She stayed sober, I said, for 90 days, going to meetings and that she could decide afterwards. And she did her. exactly what I asked of her. And she said, Mom, I've never tried to control it. And so I really believe that, you know, she said, I can see where you're coming from and I need to do well in school. I need to keep going huh. and just let me try. And I said, okay. And she did. She just turned it around. And then at that time, I was kind of like, you know, my middle son, he's still trucking. You know, he's partying, but he's trucking. He's He graduated from college. He got a job. My oldest is like your daughter. My oldest has never had alcohol and drugs because he's like, why would I even try it if there's yeah. a chance that I can have it? They're all very different. <laughs> My daughter won't even date somebody who drinks. Yeah. Sounds like our paths line up pretty nicely when it comes to the, the children and the experience with that. I'm glad that we were able to share that within this interview because, uh, you know, sometimes I think yeah. the kids are the last ones to really know it. And somewhere along the way, I had to sit my kids down when they were small. Well, not small, but old enough to understand, but still young enough to maybe be influenced by it. And I sat them down and I said, this is my this is my story, kids. And. And at the time, I remember saying to them, there's a predilection in our family for alcoholism and drug abuse. Mental health is also a big problem. I have clinical depression. My dad was, uh, he was horribly clinically depressed. And so all my three kids turn out to have clinical depression as well. 
but they didn't have to go through all the years I went through clinically depressed because we got help for them around the time that had I gotten that help from my parents, my life might have been a little bit different when it came to drugs and alcohol too. So I just think mm-hmm. it's very heartening that you would share that kind of experience with people who might be listening to this wondering, wow, I wonder why my kids are not acting the way I want them to act, especially given my experience, you know? <laughs> oh, yes. I can help you. Yes, I can keep you from having all the troubles that I had. (laughs) We may be sober alcoholics, but that doesn't mean that we can't also be codependent. These are people who are, as my wife calls them, grown-ass adults, you know, and they're going to find their own path. I'm just glad that I don't see them suffering the way I suffered. So it's a very encouraging way to think about it. Um, Before we wrap up, could you give me an idea about some of the big milestones for you? in your own recovery over the last number of years? Sure. Um, I mean, the first one that was very difficult was, you know, when my marriage broke up, the first one, that was really difficult. And, you know, being able to get through that period of time that came after um, was huge. Being able to finish school. I mean, I quit high school, got a GED, went to beauty school, quit beauty school, and then I was in three different colleges. I think I was still a sophomore in college when I decided to go and get um, my degree at the Art Institute in Houston for interior design. Mm -hmm. And I blew up even with that um, after the first semester, and that's when I got sober the last time. Hmm. I went back and got sober, and I ended up graduating with honors. And I didn't even know that I could do school. I mean, I honestly, I was such a big (laughs) pot smoker. And, you know, I just skipped school all the time, all through high school. And I really, I didn't know that I had the capacity to work hard. And that translated into having a career. Um, I also didn't know that I could do hard things and I could do hard things well. Um, Once I got out of school, I went to work for a design firm in Houston and then decided to start my own Hmm. business after a couple of years. I started three different businesses, two that failed, and then the third time was a charm. And it was all just like, you know, being able to try something and not really know what I'm doing and have enough mistakes, you know, shut it down and go back and try again and, you know, when I finally opened that third time, I've now had my own business for close to 30 years. I think those are some of the milestones or not just all the good stuff that happens, but the ability to fall down yeah. and learn from it, you know, and, yeah. and to try again and to not beat myself up. Um, one of the hardest things that I've walked through mm-hmm. is losing people I love. Um, I lost that sponsor who I was with for 15 years and she, you know, she used to always say, please don't make me your higher power. And I, I think I probably did sometimes. I just, I worshiped the ground she walked on and she just felt like, um, I don't know, just like true, genuine, unconditional mm-hmm. love to me. And that was very hard when she passed. And then my mom passed shortly after that. Mm-hmm. But some of the greatest things are uh, seeing my children do well and get through high school and then graduate from college and launch in their careers. And, um, and, and I would say one of the greatest highlights was my marriage to Pat, running into him and, you know, just the life that mm-hmm. we've created together, you know, the the host of friends that we have and the life that we have in AA, you know, I didn't see it coming that I was going to be, I guess I was 48 years old when I met him. I'm mm-hmm. now 57, not met, mm-hmm. but ran into him again. And we have just created this wonderful life. We've done lots of traveling, you know, just to know that it, it, even when things seem like, oh, there's a stop to this, this is over, and now let's go do something new, that, you know, the best is yet to come. That's one of <laughs> Pat's favorite sayings, and and I'm finding that to be true. You know, it just keeps getting better. If I just stay sober one day at a time, I remain teachable, and I'm willing to give this thing away. And that's such a beautiful way to wrap this up, is for you to 
talk about what I already knew about Pat. I've been listening to him say that for years and years, way before you guys got together. And I see the effect by knowing you now that a really sober, engaged alcoholic in AA, the effect that it can have on another human being. I see it in your smile. I see it in your eyes. But I also now understand what what I know about him and his level of peace and serenity with his own life from his relationship with you. So I think that's a beautiful testament to people who wonder, well, will I ever be happy in relationships again? Will I ever find the person who who I can really, really relate to? You know, I've had tough times in previous relationships. Will I always have tough times? And you and Pat both confirm the fact that you might have to go through a lot of really tough times, but you stay sober long enough, you give away what you got enough. Sooner or later, God will drop somebody or something into your life that'll make a big difference. Absolutely. I've really enjoyed this interview today, Felice. I didn't realize that I would be so touched by some of the similarities that you and I have. You're terrific, and I love you, and I tell all my guests that, whether they know me or not, uh, because, you know, obviously there's plenty of love to go around. There's no shortage of that, so I'm, I'm pretty free and easy with it when I can be. Oh, well, I will say I love you, too, then. Thank you. And I'll look forward to meeting you in person someday, too. I definitely want to meet you in person. And again, I want to thank you for doing this, Felice. Thank you for having me. Well, my friends, that's it for today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Felice W., for sharing her story. And thank you for tuning in. Of course, you can listen to all of my interviews in this podcast series on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Amazon, and other podcast providers. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to hear more than 125 episodes of AA Recovery Interviews. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA, that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.